Before the Rings of Power, there were the Silmarils. Before Sauron, there was his master Morgoth. Before Aragorn and Arwen, there was Beren and Luthien. Join us as we explore Tolkien and all the ages of Middle-earth with your hosts from TheOneRing.com, Jonathan Watson, Michael Grumbine, and Dan Coates. You know, guys, before we jump into anything, I have to say something that um, there's only 45% of people, only 45% of the people that watch this are subscribers. That means that 55% of you people watching this on YouTube are actually not even subscribed. What is going on? Sad. So click the subscribe button, guys. See, I usually throw this like never or later somewhere in the podcast, but I figure I, I better do it first now for those of you that listen and actually like, oh yeah, yeah, I should subscribe. Uh, the other thing is if you're, if you're a podcast listener, hey, give us a review. We haven't gotten any in a, a short amount of time and a little bit in a few, I don't, I don't know how long it is, but I want those to go up. I want more people to know that like there are people who love Tolkien who are reading the important parts, important things. Also, stuff. tell us one other person on the internet that's reviewing on fairy stories by J.R.R. Tolkien. Because I don't think there is one. I think we're the only ones. Right, right now. I mean, I could find one in the right. past. I bet, I bet. But yes. well, that'll be interesting. Actually, in a five-episode part, too. I mean, nah. in a five-five-part episode. I totally <laughs> jumbled that up. My goodness, man. All right. So yes, we are here. We're back on fairy stories. We had an interesting interview last week with Professor, Professor Nick Groom, the author of uh, Tolkien in the Twenty-First Century. Um, and, um, you know, uh, we got some, some interesting feedback from you people about, like, we were a little too easy on him uh, regarding the Rings of Power primarily. Uh, but I think we understood, like, he really comes from a different place. So we're going to talk about that in our extended podcast um, that, um, you know, that you can get by becoming a member for $4 a month at thewondering.com slash member. The first month is free. So if you want to hear us talk about our thoughts about why we didn't push back hard on the rings of power um and his thoughts on it and hey you know if you didn't listen to the extended podcast last week what you'll find out is that his favorite character in all of middle earth was toriel from the hobbit so look here's the thing like he his his position completely different than ours like his foundation of this completely different and we knew that from from the get-go and i think that's okay we still had a good conversation and it wasn't predicated on the fact that we were going to be um uh, controversial or we were going to be uh, uh we we're going to push back on all the things we disagree with on right? it's more interesting at least in the beginning to find common ground and to talk about and to understand other people and then you can have a different conversation so that's even why we said at the end where michael brought up like hey we should do a redux so like after the rings of power season two and see what we really think then we can come at it with a different perspective and i think that would be a lot of fun so anyway we're going to talk about that more in our extended podcast yeah yeah basically we did actually push back on a number of, a number of points, but we didn't do it in the usual internet ownage way. We were, yeah. you, we were having a conversation with a man who wrote a book and there's a thing called courtesy that we believe in. So. Yeah. And a guy who really knows his Tolkien still, right? You may yep. disagree with it, like, but he knew a lot and he has a lot. I mean, he has reasons for the things he believes. And even though we certainly disagree with some of those reasons, uh, he has them. Um, so anyway, all right. So we'll talk about How that. How dare further. you guys? How dare you have a conversation with somebody you, know, you don't agree with? This is why Danny weren't a part of it because we knew <laughs> that you would bring the fire, and we had right. to really like tone it down just yeah. a little bit of smoke, but not the hot heat flames that that your you know overbearing extroverted personality brings in all of our. Yeah. Okay. We nope. get that. <laughs> we get it. Speaking of Dan's overbearing extroverted personality. Dan, there's a silent. Oh my gosh! I was handing off the baton there, trying so to. So, are you saying? Are, were you were you trying to say that um, in order to listen to the podcast, the extended podcast, you got to go to the one we slash member, and in order to do that, we first have to go into Dan's big thought. All right, guys. So today we are finally on this part of uh, on fairy stories, children. And Tolkien is answering the question, who are fairy stories written for? What, what is the audience of fairy stories? And then someone goes, Mr. Tolkien, Mr. Tolkien, is it children? And Tolkien goes, no. Um, <laughs> so one of the things that he brings up that's pretty interesting to me, like he's saying like children aren't, children are just little humans. They're, they're just like adults. They're like you and me, we're grown up. The only difference is, is that they're just 
not as mature. They don't have as much experience. They don't have as much understanding of certain topics, obviously. And so he's not, he's saying like fairy stories are not written for aliens. They're not written for like some other, you know, abstract race. Like it's, it's written for us. It's written for people. And one of the arguments that he uses, um, he starts talking about like why people have this understanding. Oh, fairy, fairy tales are written for children. And, uh, the, one of the arguments is like, well, they're, they're, they're more easily duped. They're more easily prone to just believe, Oh, you told me that the dragon's real. So now I believe in the dragon. And that's why we have this conception that fairy stories are for children. Cause they're, they're just more easily fooled. And I thought it was interesting that, that this is where he gets into subcreation, which I think was a really big part of this, this section of the essay where, um, he's saying that children aren't more likely to believe it's real in reality, but he's just talking about children are, are, are more, it's, it's not about fooling them. It's, it's more about that they just have a, a willingness to go along for the ride almost like they, they they're willing to do, uh, I think he calls it literary belief. And he gets into this distinction between like, like sometimes like when you go into a movie and we're told, Oh, you just have to suspend your, your disbelief to enjoy this movie. And he's saying, no, that's terrible. If you have to do that, it's a terrible movie. Um, what you should be doing is subcreation, where it's another world that you can actually enter into that world and the rules and the laws and the magic all make sense within that world. And he's saying, like, it's not that's that that's not a childish thing. That that's that's a that's everybody. Like it's, it's we're, we're not supposed to suspend our disbelief. We're supposed to be um, looking for a story that that can captivate our attention and actually make sense within the world that it's trying to 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 convey. Right, right. Yes, I I loved that part. That is, I agree with you, Dan. I think that's the heart is the talking about literary belief, um, where he dismisses dis dis suspension of disbelief as something. He he doesn't dismiss it as a thing that can happen. He just says that's not what your goal is in fairy right. stories. It's almost as if people set up a binary where when you, you go into a tale that's a fiction, reading movies, wherever it's read, being read to you, you're listening to it, whatever the people kind of presume, well, you, you can either suspend disbelief. It's a well-written story. So you can suspend disbelief or you can't suspend disbelief. So an example of that, like in the modern world, I'm watching She-Hulk. I cannot possibly suspend disbelief. I can't even, <laughs> I, I'm watching the Barbie movie. I cannot suspend disbelief. It's so bad that I, my ability to, to pretend this is, this is that I, I can be in this world for a moment. Can't even do it. I, so I think what Tolkien says is basically there's three levels. There's that. If it's a bad story, you can't even yeah. suspend disbelief. Then there's the level you can suspend disbelief in my, in my mind, for example, if I watch the predator movies, I can suspend disbelief. There's a lot of things about the Predator movies which make it unrealistic, like even within the story that it's being told. But there's enough of an element of sort of fun realism um, and grittiness, you know, with the, with the subject matter chosen that I can suspend disbelief for a few hours and I can have fun watching the movie. And then there's what Tolkien says that you should be able to get to if, if the story is really told. And this is a real purpose of fairy stories, which is not suspension of disbelief, but actual literary belief where the person who is hearing the story or in the story is actually in the story that inside that world that you've created, sub-created, um, that the world is true. And it, as, as a literary world, not as like an LSD trip where you're on drugs and you're not sure what's real or what isn't, but and, and I'm seeing that coming off of like, you know, there was, there were in the eighties, for example, there are people that were very much against Tolkien um, because they lumped him in with the whole fantasy thing and, and the, the satanic panic stuff. And, and so that's, this is not that this is, this is actually secondary belief. It's because it's um, from a world that's been subcreated. And that's kind of the highest level of fiction that Tolkien's saying. What I was curious was why you guys thought he started with children in the sense that um, as opposed to adults, as opposed to saying this is for adults rather than saying it's not just for children. Right. Because he's, he says his purpose in the first sentence, second sentence is what, if any first sentence, what, if any are the values and functions of fairy stories. Now it actually reminded me of our, of our 
um, author that we just we just interviewed, Tolkien was asking a similar question. He's saying, "What's the what is the value and function of fairy stories now, as yeah. in nowadays, when he's writing it, when he's writing this this essay?" Similar to um, Nick Groom, who's asking the question, "What's the value of Tolkien in the 21st century yeah. now?" Yeah. Um, so this was um, nearly 100 years before, obviously. So Tolkien's writing in a different, but. But why would he? Why would he? Why would the section be called children if that's his purpose? Is to tell us what the value of fairy stories is now? Well, clearly, I mean, he talks so much about Andrew Lang's books, the the different colored books of fairy stories, and I think mm. he had created the narrative that fairy stories are for children. And even Tolkien makes the point. I don't think I have it uh, highlighted in my copy here, but he makes the point that he even took adult uh, adult stories that that weren't by the culture assumed they were for children and and put them into these books, and then they became for children in a way and so i think i think he felt like and even then um you know the the sentiment that yeah well the suspension of disbelief or um a spell being put on you when you're reading a great story like this is for is is something that children do it's not something that mature adults do and i think he was uh, disabusing us of that notion that's why he starts with children rather than starting with adults does that make sense i do i think so I, and I also, I, I see what he's doing as very, actually, philosophically in the same tradition as Aristotle. Er, and, and when Aristotle or Plato, Socrates, when they want to discover what the essence of a thing is, they first start with what most people say a thing is. They'll say, mm-hmm. okay, so mm-hmm. what is, what's the common opinion about what this is? And, and I, I see Tolkien starting that way, where he's taking the common opinion about fairy stories being that they're for children. And then like Dan points out, his answer, as with every chapter, is no. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you thought was right is wrong, and I'm going to show you how. So, yeah. so he, go, he goes through in, in a very, but he does it kind of haphazardly, to my mind. He doesn't do it in a. He, he may start like Aristotle, but he doesn't. He doesn't uh, follow through like Aristotle, point by point. He kind of floats through his own um, experience as well of fairy stories when he was a kid. He talks about that experientially, in other words, and he says. You know, Andrew Lang may say, for example, that this is um, one of the things he said was that um, that children are easily fooled that you, you touched on that, Dan. And his answer to that was, no, children want to know what's true. They mm-hmm. they're they're not just like sitting there looking for something to fool themselves or or in, right. some, in fact, they're they're very frequently not easily fooled. Um, and then Andrew Lang at another point um, says that uh, that fairy stories um, their taste, the ch- taste of children is what Andrew Lang is saying. Their taste, their taste, the taste of children remains like the taste of their naked ancestors thousands of years ago. And they seem to like fairy stories better than history, poetry, geography, or arithmetic. And then Tolkien, that was, that's the Andrew Lang quote. And then Tolkien goes on to, to debunk that by, in a very sort of Chestertonian fashion, he says, but do we really know much about these naked ancestors, except that they were certainly not naked? So sort of <laughs> Chestertonian paradox, starting with a paradox. Yeah. The one thing we know about our naked ancestors is that they weren't naked. And and he goes on to say, essentially, um, we, we're presuming, you know, that we're casting the the, the like likability of fairy stories into this far distant past um, where children are sort of tapping into something um, um, from our from an uncivilized time, but Tolkien points out, hey, you know what, you know what, our, our not naked ancestors liked as well. They liked history, geography, poetry, and arithmetic. So, so it's very likely instead that the, that the the love of fairy stories is based in something else, not just an overly primitive sense of children that children have. Um, it's it's actually more human than that. And then he goes on to tell us what he thinks the actual root is, which is desire that fairy stories awaken desire and that, and fairy stories are about desirability. And so what is desirable in other words? And then he goes on to talk about, for example, that was why he was never entertained by Alice, the story, the Alice stories or the treasure Island. Cause he never liked pirates. Tolkien was not a pirate mm-hmm. lover, mm-hmm. Um, but he did like, as he says, red Indians. So the native American stories, he liked those uh, another, another quote that I think we've mentioned in the past. He, he liked the last of the Mohicans, um, when he was the the story anyway, um, who knows what he would have thought of the movie, but the, um, and the, but then he says, best of all is the Merlin and Arthur tales and the North, uh, Sigurd and the Volsungs, um, and all of the tales of Anglo-Saxon North. So this is clearly what 
Tolkien finds desirable. So he's going to tell us a st fairy story. I'm now extrapolating. He doesn't talk about this, but he's now going to tell us a fairy story about the things that Tolkien finds desirable, mm -hmm. yeah. which is why you can actually have all kinds of fairy stories. And one of the interesting things regarding the whole idea that it's for children that I found interesting is that when you leave things alone with children, generally they get ruined, right? Mm -hmm. So he, he talks about how if you leave a table in a nursery, it's, it's, uh, it's going to be destroyed, right? If any one of these things would, would, if left altogether in the nursery, become gravely impaired, so would a beautiful table, a picture, a useful machine, such as a microscope, would be defaced or broken if it were long, left long unregarded in a schoolroom. Um, and so it's, you know, though children, they, you know, they, they, they like adults. The same, the same children who love fairy stories as children generally love, love them as adults. You grow up and you find, right, and he makes this point at the end too when he talks about, right, we're not meant to be, remain as a Peter Pan. Uh, you grow up and you start respecting and you start enjoying and you start finding the value in it rather than just the desire for it. Uh, and I think that was an important point that really shortened here, but that's like, you don't, you don't leave children because you know what, if, if you're left with a child's mind with arithmetic, it's never going to get bigger, better, grander, more believable, more sub-creative in that sense. Does, or am I reading too much into that? No, no, no. That's, I highlighted that sentence um, at the end of the, of the one that you started quoting from. He says, fairy stories banished in this way, cut off from a full adult art would in the end be ruined. Indeed, insofar as they have been so banished, they have been ruined. Yeah. yeah. So, so he's he's seen it very clearly. The the art of fairy stories is an adult art. Mm -hmm. It can it can be adapted to children, and he had just done so. In fact, when he was writing this essay, he had just adapted fairy stories to children with The Hobbit, because he had he had um, published The Hobbit, right, Jonathan? You're all, you're the date 1937. guy. Nineteen thirty seven. Yeah, so this is 30, this, there's two versions of this essay. One was 37 and the other one was 39. So yeah. this is the fuller version. Let me, he, uh, let me go ahead, go ahead, Dan. Uh, he had an interesting comment um, regarding the timing of this coming after The Hobbit, where he's talking about, um, he was talking about how there seems to be these, we seem to be in an age of childhood sentiment where, mm. we're, where we're producing stuff for children specifically as opposed to, um, making it for everybody or, or making it as a grown up. I think he uses the word adult art. Yep. And so what he's saying is as a result, we're making a lot of bad stuff where, where, where stories are being adapted for children. And in the process, they're being um, ruined in a sense. They're, they're being sanitized or they're being too simplified. And then he also says um, that these imitations are often merely silly and patronizing, or I got to be careful how I say this covertly sniggering as if like talking over the audience, like I'm writing this for children, but you adults, you guys, you guys get what I'm saying. Like you, these dumb kids don't get, get this part, but you know, I'm going to, I'm going to wink eyes and laugh with you uh, adults out there. I thought that was interesting. I'm wondering if that line in particular, where he's talking about the covert sniggering, um, <laughs> where you're talking over the audience. I wonder if that is a reflection of him thinking about writing The Hobbit. Because I'm wondering if like when he wrote The oh, Hobbit, he, he made that, he made a choice to say, this is this is like my my mythos adapted for children. And I wonder if he, he thought that maybe he made it too silly in the process. Oh, interesting. I, do you think that you, can you think of things in The Hobbit that you think that Tolkien was sort of laughing um, that children would be caught up in, but we're, that Tolkien was sort of laughing at what's going on in the Hobbit um, with the adults in the room, so to speak. I'm trying to remember. I, I, I think that there's moments when he's introducing Bilbo in, in Bilbo's house where he's kind of like saying things in a, in a matter of fact way to the adults, like, Oh, you know, of course this meant this. Um, hmm. I can't think of the exact line, but he kind of describes um, Hobbits in a very childlike way. And then he kind of, he'll make like side comments. Um, Right, right. I, I, I think, I, I suspect you're right. I'm, I'm trying to remember the same. It, I didn't, I didn't uh, know yeah. this was going to be one of your points. So it'd be fun to go back and look at the Hobbit in that light. Uh, but well, and I it's would... something we touched on last week with even with Nick Rumors, where he said like uh, Tolkien kept revising the Hobbit because he wanted to bring it more into the adult fairy story of the Lord of the Rings rather than leaving it right as this other story. I think what we have to remember, based on what we were saying earlier in this conversation, is. Tolkien didn't have a problem with fairy stories 
for children. Mm-hmm. He, he just said, if you leave it in the realm of just for children, if if fairies, if all, right. if the only time fairy the stories only, ever appear yeah, yeah. is as ch- a child's tale, then you're going to have a real problem, and fairy stories are going to be ruined. But the idea of a fairy story appropriate to children, not a problem at all. I mean, yeah, right. read, read his Father Christmas letters. It's that's all it is. It's, it's, it's children's fairy. It's 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 a right. it's a bunch of tiny fairy stories um, for children. Can I ask, let me ask a question then and kind of bring this into some of the discussions regarding what people say today. So when say, you know, people, what Tolkien's saying back then is that people say, oh, fairy stories, it's for kids. Is that similar in some ways, however, uh, in, a, in a less patronizing way and saying that now people say like, we have to write it for modern audiences. Hmm. Is that, is there a parallel in, in treating something like that? Because both of them say, I have to do it in a certain vein. I have to cast certain lights onto this in order to make it appropriate for that group. Instead of saying, let's make it excellent. Let's make it great. There, there, there are other things to hold true to rather than what uh, the sensibilities of this group is, are. Yeah, it's interesting. That's interesting. I would say that there is a similarity. It's not exactly the same, but what's happening is not exactly the same, but there's a very, a very close similarity. Here's why. Um, at the time when Tolkien says that when he's talking about what fairy stories ought to be here, he says they were relegated to attics. Basically he says, um, I say perhaps, okay, at least it will be plain that in my opinion, fairy stories should not be specially, emphasize the word specially, associated with children. They are associated with them naturally because children are human and fairy stories are a natural human taste, though not necessarily a universal one. Accidentally, in other words, they are accidentally associated with them because fairy stories are a large part of the literary lumber that in latter day Europe has been stuffed away in attics unnaturally because of the erroneous sentiment about children, a sentiment that seems to increase with the decline in children. So Tolkien's getting at three causes that he says that fairy stories are associated with children. One correct, one accidental, and one incorrect. Mm-hmm. And, but, but so he's getting at the root of what the, what, why um, Europeans and Americans associate um, fairy stories with children. Nowadays, the desire to remake an adult fairy story like Tolkien for a modern audience, I think comes from a route where you look at the source, people are looking at the source and, and this is a thing that happens all the time today where people say, oh, but back in that day when that author wrote that book, they had these beliefs that I find reprehensible. So we have to, and the characters, they don't appear or talk the way the people on the streets of New York talk. So therefore I have to rewrite their work as if it's not good enough in its own context, I have to rewrite it for a modern audience. Um, so it's a very patronizing and very, yeah. um, it, 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 and it fails utterly to see wherein the value of old literature lies. In other words, that value, I would say, lies in um, the touching on timeless quality. So what makes literature, great literature actually great, when it is great, is that it, it taps into universal truth um, and values that we, can, we all know. Um, and also nowadays mistake that the values that they can, they, they, they can feel a sync with values, like the fight mm-hmm. for justice against injustice. They feel that mm-hmm. modern audiences feel that, but they want it in the trappings of TikTok. They want it in the trappings of the cosmopolitan um, racial makeup of New York city. They want it in the trappings of what they are f- comfortable and familiar and hear, hear it within. And they aren't willing to go, go outside themselves. Is it also um, when you say it's for modern audiences in the same way that you make it for children, what you're doing is you're letting, and this is something Tolkien brought up in the previous chapters is you're letting the, the, our world intrude on the secondary world, right? On the, and it, and it, Good it point. makes it less. And so when you say, oh, you've got to make it for modern audiences, it is no longer a subcreated world. It's a, it's, 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 it's a siphon from this world into something else that they've created that they've colored differently, but it's, it's, it's infiltrated with things that aren't appropriate to that. So for instance, uh, like this is a, this is completely separate. I have watched Star Trek Strange New Worlds, which is, eh, okay. Uh, one of the things that they said all of a sudden, and this, and, and granted, we talked about whether Star Trek is fairy story or not, but you do have to have a believability where you have to have a spell cast over you to believe this is happening in 
the Star Trek world, right? And any story, any good fiction story needs to do that. And so one of the things that the, the character said was, hold on to your butts. Do you guys know what that's originally from? You guys remember no. that quote? That's what, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Dan, you remember this. You're like, what's it from? I know this. Uh, it's Samuel L. Jackson said it in Jurassic Park. Yeah, and, you're right. And I'm just like, wait, <laughs> you can't, you can't make this like you can't reference our world in the secondary world. And it's like a microcosm of how writers that are on strike appropriately and should remain on strike uh, are, are, are writing only what they know. And what they know are these stories from our and they're not able to create great new fantasy worlds because they're not subcreating. Actually, they're just riffing off of things that they've seen it just it was horrible. It was horrible. I, anyway, that's a, that's yeah, a complete. So aside. you're right. You're right that that breaks that breaks the ability to have secondary belief. So agree, yeah. or literary belief. Agree with that. Yeah, it's fascinating to me. I'm I'm really kind of I'm turning it over my head now. Like, what is it that they want to do? What are they trying to achieve? Because they're just destroying the. You can't have um, um, literary belief in a secondary world in a subcreated world if you keep referencing because it yanks you out totally. of that world and back into our own world. And for mm -hmm. them, for the people that do this, the comfort that they find, I'm just making this up now. I'm just trying to think. It, it seems to me there's there, there, they find comfort in familiar references. So if a person says, hold on to your butts, um, they're like, I know that reference. And so it gives them a feeling. <laughs> I guess. Of, of, of I, it's, it's got to like why would why do they put in a line that only comes from modern world the modern world a because they don't care about whether a person in the story that they're telling would actually say that they're just putting it in so that people can say oh, I know that uh, uh, as the it's meme goes member Barry would Captain America right? meme I understood that reference yeah right yeah yeah it, yeah it, it's it's that moment where you're like yeah I feel I got a warm fuzzy because I know what you're talking about it's the member Barry yeah. <sighs> okay back to children sorry about that <laughs> i pushed us into territories untrue. no no, no. i i i at least at least we uh and, and we also brought up the covert sniggering so that's that's fantastic <laughs> one of the yeah, things I, I guess um uh, one of the things i was reading in the introduction on this on this version of on fairy stories the um i think it's verlin flieger or in mm -hmm. Douglas Anderson, he has an introduction where he talks about the differences between The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, just in terms of tone, in terms of the voice of the narrator. Um, I guess like there's a there's the example that he uses is when he introduces Bilbo and it's Gandalf saying um, he's as fierce as a dragon in a pinch, and then the narrator will will kind of like intrude in on that and make a joke about it, um, saying. Mm -hmm. uh, if you've ever seen a dragon in a pinch, you'll realize that this was only poetical exaggeration. Um, so like the narrator jumps in to kind of make a joke about it. Um, he also talked about. Um, it, it almost sounds more like what you said, Michael, earlier, uh, the um, letters from Father Christmas, right? It's like Father Christmas narrating his own stories. It's almost like who the narrator is yeah. in parts of The Hobbit. Yeah, yeah, but that's what and he was writing. Then and, the, and then there's the elves that are singing, and the narrator jumps in and says, "Oh, and they said they said other stuff that was just nonsense, like that, you know." Like, <laughs> so so the narrator's constantly yeah. jumping in and kind of joking with you know the other clever people in the audience that that that, that are in on the, this being silly, you know. Yeah, you're talking about the trouble of all the elves. Yeah, in, in Rivendell. Yeah. So yes. I don't know. I, I don't know if, if if him thinking about on fairy stories. I'm probably jumping way off track here, but no, I don't think I, so. I, I, I'm wondering if there's something between uh, writing The Hobbit, d giving this lecture on Andrew Lang and fairy stories, and then going on to write The Lord of the Rings. Like it seems like something kind of shifted for him, where um, it, maybe if he could go back in time, maybe he would rewrite The Hobbit and ma make it sound more similar in tone to what the rest of the, the see I, I, is. yeah i think more it was that rather than a an issue of it not being the fairy story that he wrote meaning he wanted it to be a bigger part of the lord of the rings right and not um mm -hmm. a, an initial offshoot and the tone wasn't right for it and i think he knew that but that doesn't mean he thought it was wrong for it originally and if he hadn't written lord of the rings it still would have been just fine it would have been yeah. a fine fairy story in that sense so he's fine with adapting things for children so that they can come in, you know, like, um, I'm trying to think of an example. Um, but, but it was, was a, like, a, 
Yeah, I mean, th though The Hobbit was not an adaptation, it was simply the way yeah. it was written. Right. Yeah, I guess it, I guess that'd be like saying if he wrote the Lord of the Rings children adapted version. Um, <laughs> like, yeah. I wonder, I wonder if he would be against that completely, or if he would understand where that's coming from, and just say, well, you're probably going to be leaving lots of good stuff out, but um, maybe that maybe that's still okay. I don't know. Yeah, that's a good question. Would he be okay? I would suspect he would not be okay with Lord of the Rings being adapted for children. The reason is, I think, The Lord of the Rings was written as an adult fairy tale. So would it be, I mean, I don't know that he'd have a, a, a big problem with it, but he would. it would not be the same story. Like his point, I feel like this is, and this is my own projection, I, I, I grant first off, but I feel like, chronologically coming where this essay does where he was he had written the hobbit he had published the hobbit and he was getting commentary about the hobbit and this was in fact one of the reasons why he wrote the essay was as a defense of this kind of writing it wasn't just the the issue of writing a fairy tale it was the issue of writing fiction at all for a learned and 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 lauded professor of anglo-saxon literature like himself from his Oxford fellows. And so he was writing in defense of the, of the idea of fictional um, literature in, in general. Mm -hmm. I see this as a transition, like right now in right now, as, as he's writing this in the late 1930s, he's also trying to bring the Hobbit in line. He is realizing that he wants to bring the Hobbit in line with his primary world, a secondary world rather, that he's been developing for the last 20 years and 20 some years. And he's starting to make those shifts and writing Lord of the Rings and, and um, fitting it all together. And he'll continue to do that for many years to come after this. But there's, there's a real sense, I think, in, and you see this at the end of this essay, there's a real sense that there's a lack of real fairy stories in the world that we've, we've kind of relegated fairy stories to the nursery inappropriately and so i see his lord of the rings as an example of um, and it, you know he even brings it up the fact that he actually didn't come to a love of fairy stories until he was older <laughs> um yeah. he says all the same important as i now perceive the fairy story element in early readings to in early reading to have been in other words when he was a child speaking for myself as a child i can only say that a liking for fairy stories was not a dominant characteristic of early taste a real taste for them awoke after nursery days and after the years, few but long seen between learning to read and going to school. Okay. Um, in that, in that time, I liked many other things as well or better, such as history, astronomy, botany, grammar, and etymology. So he's saying though in an intervening time, he had other loves and then he grew to love fairy stories after that. I mean, we see that because of course, as he's graduating from college, as he's going off to the World War One, he's writing fairy stories or the beginnings of fairy stories. So he came to the love of fairy stories later in, late, as, he's, as he's growing up, um, mm -hmm. not, not just when he's a little child and then putting away that love. Um, although he does admit that this is, it's, a, it's, a, it's a taste the taste for fairy stories is not a universal taste. There are plenty of people that just don't like it. And he doesn't have a problem with that. Well, and he had, a, he had a taste for it. And as he grew and as he matured and as he learned more, it, it almost like that was the soil that his taste for it started growing in deeper and deeper until it's finally flowered, right? So if it wasn't for an interest in history, astronomy, botany, grammar, and etymology, the fairy story that he created, the, the sub-creation would have been far less grand. Right. That's it, right. Would have, it, it would have been uh, nothing. It, would, like, it wouldn't have existed even. Yeah, he wouldn't, he wouldn't have been able to write an adult fairy story. Yeah, and even I like his little line. He's like, I was, for instance, insensitive to poetry and skipped it if it came in tales. And all of us were like, yes, we did that the first time too when we read The Lord of the Rings. We're like, what? We skipped <laughs> all your poetry. Yeah. When, <laughs> but then when I read it at eight years yeah. old. He discovered it much later in Latin and Greek. And that, you know, that, that when he discovered it much later, he's like, oh, there's value to this. I'm going to actually start incorporating this here. And I, I'm going to start like using this and trying it out. Um, and in the same way, we can now go through the Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion and read that. We, we have a greater uh, appreciation for it. I think the more that you read into Tolkien, the more that you actually enjoy his works, right? It, it, it sort of grows rather than uh, is something you end up skipping over all the time.
Mm. Yep. Now, to be fair, he does in in this section um, delve into something where he, he gives Andrew Lang his due about children, because there is something about the land of fairy, which which he says you have in order to appreciate fairy. You have to have the heart of a child. He says, I do not deny that there is a truth in Andrew Lang's words, sentimental though they may sound. Quote, he who would enter into the kingdom of fairy should have the heart of a little child, close quote. For that possession is necessary to all high adventure into kingdoms both less and far greater than fairy. So, so in other words, he's referencing scripture, obviously, when, it, when, when Christ is saying that you, that you have to have um, you have to be like a child and come mm -hmm. to him. Um, and he's, in other words, that's the, that's the kingdom far greater than fairy is the kingdom of heaven. So, so there's a, a real, um, but there's a real sense in which you have to, and this is, and then in this case, he quotes Chesterton, one of my favorite quotes about Chesterton and, and um, uh, fairy stories. Um, he says, Chesterton once remarked that the children in whose company he saw metter, uh, uh, miter links, is it miter links or links? Meister Link's Blue Bird, I have never seen it, so I don't know what it is, were dissatisfied because, quote, because it did not end with a day of judgment and it was not revealed to the hero and the heroine that the dog had been faithful and the cat faithless. For children, he says, this is Chesterton, are innocent and love justice while most of us are wicked and naturally prefer mercy. <laughs> <laughs> Which is... And then he says, Andrew Legg was confused on this point. In other words, what he's saying is, you do have to be like a child. You have to have humility and innocence to answer Lana Ferry. But it's not an uncritical wonder or uncritical tenderness. It is not the immature emotions of the child that you have to have, but rather the openness to wonder and mm -hmm. and um, to to these real um, these real and sometimes very sharp uh, truths like justice like a love for justice. And so, so that's a, um, it's, it's fascinating. Um, but so, so there is a sense, I'm just pointing out, there is a sense in which there is, there are childlike qualities required for the full appreciation of fairy. Mm -hmm. But as Tolkien says, there are also childlike qualities re required for a kingdom far greater than fairy. So child, those childlike qualities are not, um, just relegated to the land of fairy, there there are th qualities that we should have in general. We should we, we should we should be leaning into those that kind of humility and innocence and love of wonder without being childish in our in the way that we look at look at things. Yeah, and that um, the one big thing I took out of this, my big thought, Dan, hmm. was that um, believability is not the primary function in children of fairy stories. It's desirability. It's what they desire, right? He says, I desired one. I desired to, sh I, I can't remember. I desired to, I have an unrequited desire to shoot well with an arrow with a bow. Mm -hmm. And then he also, I, I desired dragons with a profound desire, right? So that it's, it's not, it's, it's not whether it's believable or not. It's how desirable it is and the world that we want to inhabit. And so that's why, in these worlds like Middle Earth that Tolkien created, we want to inhabit it. We we desire to be there, whether it's believable, whether we are able to suspend disbelief. I don't like that term, suspend disbelief in this sense either, because we don't really suspend our disbelief in things. We simply desire it greater than anything else immediately around us, right? And that's why we enjoy it so much, and that's why we can uh, fall into it. And children have a greater ability to desire these things. They have. It is easier for them to fall into that desirability um, not believability because they know when they pretend that they're not really cops or robbers. They're not really spacemen and aliens, right? They know that, but they desire it. And so they're able to fall into that and enjoy it in a way that, um, and, and even respect it in a way, right? Because it's real to them, right? They're, they're, they're subcreating in this imagination of theirs right now. The spell is cast on them. Uh, and I thought uh, that, that for me was my big takeaway from reading this part of the, 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 the essay. Yeah. And he, he almost seems to be defining fairy stories a little bit more for us too. Cause in that section, he says, it's not just desire for adventure. It's not just desire for treasure. Um, it's desire yeah. for, an, I think he uses other world as a noun it's other world. Mm -hmm. And I think he even gives you some inclinations that it, it's going back to other parts of the essay where it's, it's something ancient, it's something old, it's something foreign. Um, and then I, that made me think of like, you know, dragons and maps and <laughs> you know it's just it's just so, it's like a whole nother world with its own history yeah. uh, that seems to be what he's getting at 
Yeah. Right. And and that's why, um, because we're not allowed to finish an um, episode without referencing Rings of Power, apparently. <laughs> no, we're um, not. <laughs> um, so his quote, um, not, nothing to do with Rings of Power, that he luckily didn't know was going to exist less than 100 years after he wrote this. But the land of Merlin and Arthur was better than these. This is the treasure, better than the Treasure Island, better mm. than the, the stories of Indians, of Native Americans. He says... And best of all, the nameless north of Sigurd and the Volsungs and the prince of all dragons. Such lands were preeminently desirable. Mm. So yeah. he's desiring a whole land there. And and Tolkien is telling us plainly, and of course everyone that knows his work knows that this is exactly what he did with Lord of the Rings. He wrote a fairy story um, about um, the nameless north the northern it was a northern european fairy story so if you're going to adapt a northern european fairy story then you should do so with that as your um current that is the that is the movement of the water that you are adapting so if you're going to accurately um um for example tell a story of the second age of middle earth then you need to do so by retelling a story with tolkien's broad strokes but with where the details are indeed a northern european fairy story and and that's where and that's why the lord the rings of power and all of the um diversity equity and inclusion stuff that that got mixed in with it was whatever you think of the diversity equity inclusion um principles it was at the very least wholly inappropriate for tolkien because it, it is not was not just as if you were to write a um, if you were going to write a fairy story of the in the age of gilgamesh um, but you you decided to do that by doing only um, South American peoples or peoples of the Americas. That would be wholly inappropriate because it doesn't it had, does not have the character of the peoples of uh, the Middle East and Northern Africa, which is what, what and um, what the Lay of Gilgamesh takes place. And so so th so this is um, you know this is his his fairy story being told. But there's room for uh, fairy stories of all types. And if you can tell a good story and create a good story of any type, maybe you are a person that loves pirates. So you can tell a fairy story about a pirate world um, and or a world in which, you know, there's a pirate adventure. Yeah. And and um, that could be totally a real fairy story in Tolkien's mind. Anytime the modern world intrudes on this, it's a failure. <laughs> you know i just but it doesn't have to be jonathan it doesn't have to be they could that that's what kills me what kills me is i mean i don't have any faith in the modernity because modernity has failed us in mm -hmm. 18 18 ways from sunday but there but when it but when modernity um is about to do something like the rings of power i always think in the back of my head of what it could be and i think if you if you if you approach it with the right with the right spirit and you, you're trying to write the type of fairy story that Tolkien was trying to write, cause you are using his world. Mm -hmm. Then, then it could be beautiful. It could be mm -hmm. wonderful. Um, oh, the, well, the shallow idea that it has to be representative is silly. I, I, this, this bit of news I think came out uh, recently. There's a new Assassin's Creed game. I think it's for phones or whatever. It's set in Japan in at, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And okay. who's the primary protagonist? Apparently it's a, it's an African samurai and a female ninja. Neither that doesn't really don't exist. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the, even in the, the simple little things of, of our time, they, they just like, when you start off with less believable, less desirable like that, you're like, well, I want to be in that world. If, if you pull me out of that world, you're just, you're making these characters and you're, I'm just not there because that never would have happened. Um, I mean, I mean, so there is, and there is, funnily enough, there is one way it could happen. Have you ever read the book Shogun? Mm -mm. James Clovell. So it's this old, you know, story about fish out of water story about it. Um, it's like the last samurai. It's about a, it's about a European okay. that, that, that finds himself. So if you tell it as a fish out of water story, where for some believable reason, somebody mm -hmm. from another ethnic culture, it finds himself in Japan. And with all of the problems that that comes with, with, with you know, someone and in all of the, 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 um, struggles and, and friction that creates, then write that story. Okay, fine. Then, I'll, but if you're just going to say, you can pretend that everyone from Japan is going to not look so, twice at, at a, a, an African samurai, yeah. then then you're an idiot.
because that's not you're, what you're writing a, is, isn't believable. Or a traveling space. band of hobbits with that have been traveling together for a thousand years and somehow all completely look like they were from different corners of the mm-hmm. world. It just makes no sense. All right. All right, guys. Uh-huh. And like here we, so he finishes. Let's. Right. So, so he finishes with um, a, a transition to our next chapter on fantasy, because he says, "Very well then. If adults are to read fairy stories as a natural branch of literature, neither playing at being children, nor pretending to be choosing for children, nor being boys who would not grow up, what are the values and functions of this kind? That is this kind of literature. This brand. This kind of uh, this branch of literature. So, what are the values of fairy stories?" That is, I think, the last and most important question. I've already hinted at some of my answers. First, uh, first of all, if written with art, the primary value of fairy stories will simply be that value which has literature they share with other literary forms. But fairy stories offer also, in a peculiar degree or mode, these things. So these four other things. Fantasy, recovery, escape, consolation. All things which children have, as a rule, less need than older people. (laughs) So what he's saying is actually uh, we need to write more adult fairy stories because we need fairy stories more than kids do. Most of them are nowadays very commonly considered to be bad for anybody. I will consider them briefly, and we'll begin with fantasy. So, and that's what we're, we're going to do next week. We're going to finally just do the, the elements. Are we going to oh, just, just do fantasy? Just is do it, fantasy. How, how long is it? It's long enough because we always talk long enough to make it a full episode. It's going to be just fantasy. One of these days, Jonathan will have a an episode where we only spend 35 minutes. Mm-mm. We already did that. It was like a year and three months ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you just turned the camera on for 30 minutes and talked to yeah, yourself. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, almost right. sounds like, uh, it almost sounds like towards the end where he's talking about fantasy recovery, escape, consolation. That's That's what the value of fairy stories are and then peculiar value he has to like defend those things now Mm -hmm. it's it's almost like you know nowadays like or like when i was growing up defending to your parents why video games are okay like that would be like a a modern (laughs) modern debate like how, how dare you be in a fantasy world how dare you escape um, that was uh, you were going to write that essay on video games, weren't you? <laughs> <laughs> so, fantasy recovery, escape, and consolation will be interesting to dig into what he means. But I agree with you, Jonathan. Uh, with D- Dan, uh, most of them quote most of them are nowadays very commonly considered to be bad for anybody. <laughs> so, yep, video games bad for every anybody. <laughs> Depends on the game, like that new Assassin's Creed. Gollum is, I can tell you that. Gollum. <laughs> hey, just real fast, that whole company is is no longer in service. They're I know. No around that there. was the fastest, oh, the yeah. fastest implosion Collab. of a company I've ever seen. Like I, it put out a game, and it's what yeah. was it, three months later. I think it's three. Not months even. Later. They're not even. It was like they're a gone. Month ago. They're gone. It was like two months after As that. If they they're, never existed. Well, they're just like they're just uh, repurposing other people's video games. They're just republishing them or something like that, or throwing them. So they're through. not going to patch that game like they promised. Well, they <laughs> did. They patched it and. And it and and this oh, this person this one I, I read an article where this guy who is a reviewer he had I think it was the next day or the day after two days later there had been a total of seven downloads of the patch <laughs> seven I didn't I haven't yeah that's I, wow. I, this is an article I read yesterday it was awesome that's amazing those seven so, people are like I really want this golem game well, I really well, want it to work how many of those were the were the you know the developers, the developers. or the beta oh my testers? gosh <laughs> yeah nobody would go back and nobody wants to go back and actually I have not booted it up since I did the live no, stream with nor, there's no, no there's no desire to it's trash yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can't I can't I can't love it at all all right guys well next week we'll do we'll do fantasy however this week uh we do have uh this if you like talking. And uh, I decided I read The Lord of the Rings uh, on my dad's copy of The Lord of the Rings, which was this old 1960s version. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to go ahead. And I bought, well, that color is bad. I bought these three original copies that were pretty good. I I remember those. Those were the library Um, copies in my middle school. They're so funky. I mean, the, those copies, like the the the, the drawings, and they kind of, I think they all uh, they all come together. Oh shoot, I just dropped it. <laughs> anyway, well, it was eBay. The so I, right? it's, Is that the first edition? No, I'll tell you what they are. But yeah, they come together. They create like one picture. You can see that. See that? Oh they yeah, create one picture. Um, and um, 
And these here were published. Let's see, this copy was published in, this is for Judy. I got it on eBay. A couple of pages are falling out. I think I only paid like 15 bucks for all three of these here. So you can find some good deals. A lot of times they'll go for more. The Return of the King, the two towers are actually in really good condition. There's like, there's, there's almost nothing. The, the, the Fellowship of the Ring was read a little bit more. Somebody didn't finish it. Maybe the cover's falling off. Uh, this here was published. Hold on. Hold on. I'm trying to get there without breaking another page out. 19. This is the third. No, the sixth printing, August 1966. Okay. The first printing, wow. So they had six printings between October 66 and uh, October 65 and uh, August 1966. Uh, but this, the f yeah, this was the first U.S. printing in 65. So this is at the heyday of uh, the sort of the height of popularity. Of yeah. Tolkien. So that right there. Sorry, I should go back to like all three of us here. Sorry about that. There we go. That one right there. Yeah. Cool. So. Anyway, that was kind of a fun thing. So you can find like good deals sometimes. I've been looking for one that was uh, the, the, these these three um, that were relatively inexpensive on eBay, and so uh, I decided to bite the bullet and and got them. Really, just like they smell like the books when I read them. Even like they were old, and when I read them in nineteen uh, how was it? nineteen eighty seven, eighty eight, they were like twenty years old then, and now they're like fifty years old. I mean. 40 years old <laughs> that no uh, what are you talking about 1966 <laughs> they're 60 years old or six uh, 55 arithmetic is for children i don't really worry about that right <laughs> it's relegated to the nursery room i don't think about that that much anymore. right <laughs> all right all right everybody we're going to go to our extended podcast where we're going to talk about a little bit more about the interview last week and why we conducted it the way we did and some of our thoughts about that um and uh, if you want to hear that, you can go ahead to thewondering.com slash member, become a member, listen to it for free, and then pay the next month if you want to for four bucks. Or you can become a sponsor like Harrison, Adam, Lynn, and Chuck, who uh, chip in some more and uh, support us even more to pay for the big bills. We've got the big StreamYard bill coming up in November, I think, the yearly one. Anyway, but uh, no, no, guys, we appreciate all the, uh, all the support that you give us, uh, and we're, it's a pleasure to have you along. So we're going to do that. We're going to talk uh, about the question I has about... Um, Gosh, you gotta gotta get it up here. Uh, TikTok. What he thought about tragedy, a little bit. What Tolkien might have thought about oh. tragedy. Hmm. So we're gonna bring that up, and uh, we're gonna jump into our uh, our supporter section, our sponsor section, our member section. Please join us there. And goodbye, freeloaders. Yes, thank you. Just making sure that we have that in.